We are grateful to, uh, to gather with you today in this cool air-conditioned room. Last week was so fun, though, being outside in the open air and uh, worshiping together uh, down at Mira Vista Park. I'm grateful for all of you who made that trek out there and were blessed by the, the services we held. Um, and thank you all for bringing delicious food. I uh, started a diet on Monday. We, we, we organized the whole thing so it would begin the day after picnic because we like to share what you all share with us. We like to eat and we like to enjoy. So thank you all for being there. Uh, if you didn't get a chance to come out and join us, uh, we were not in Galatians at the park. We were in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so you haven't missed anything, um, hopefully. Um, but if you'd like to take your Bibles now and open up to Galatians chapter 2, we're going to continue where... Uh, where Matt left off as he preached two weeks ago. It's such a blessing to be in a church where there are godly men who love the Lord, who can preach to us from His Scripture, that we're not dependent on one guy to preach the Scripture, but the Lord God has given the, the spiritual gift of teaching and shepherding uh, to several. So if you've got your, your Bibles, open up to Galatians chapter 2. I want us all to remember that sometime before Galatians was written, Paul, Titus, and Barnabas had taken a special trip to Jerusalem. They headed south. They were stationed in, uh, in Antioch and Syria, but they went down to Jerusalem to deliver an offering that had been collected by the brothers in Syria and Antioch and the areas around there because they had heard of a famine that was coming to Jerusalem. You can go back and read about that, that short journey in Acts chapter 11 if you like. And while they were there in Jerusalem, don't forget that Paul compared notes with Peter and with James, and with John. He discussed their respective ministries, and then satisfied that they were all aiming to glorify the Lord together, and that their understanding of the gospel was the same. The apostles, James, John, Peter, they extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul. They recognized that the gospel that Paul had received from Jesus by divine revelation was the very same gospel that they themselves had received as they walked along with him in his three years of earthly ministry. So there's some familiarity between Peter and Paul. They know each other. They're, they're co-laborers in the gospel. They've got a common ground in God's grace. About a year or so later, after that meeting described in Acts 11, Peter headed north. He left Jerusalem to stay in Antioch for a while. It's almost like he returned the favor, went to go stay with Paul and the other brothers that were there. At first, it seemed as though Peter fit right in with the practice and the belief in that city. Antioch was the first major church outside of Judea. And so that meant that there was a good mixture of Jewish Christians, but also Gentile Christians, people who did not have a background with Yahweh. They were not God worshipers. They heard the gospel of Jesus and they were saved out of their pagan religions or saved out of unbelief altogether. And Peter, as he came into Antioch and began to minister alongside Paul and Barnabas and the others there, he treated those Gentile believers with the same kind of love and affection that he would treat a Jewish brother with. He cared for them. He taught them. He ate with them. He had good fellowship with them. And this makes sense, of course, because both Peter and Paul taught the same gospel, the gospel that, that declares that salvation comes through grace alone and not by our good works. It didn't matter, therefore, whether the Gentile believers were circumcised or not. It didn't matter whether they ate the kind of foods that traditionally Jewish people had sworn off. It didn't matter what they ate. 
Their background was irrelevant now because having put their faith in Jesus Christ, these Gentiles were now a new creation. The old had passed away, the new had come. So at first, Peter lived in harmony with all the believers in Antioch. But then something happened that caused Peter's behavior to make a change. And so we are here in Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to be reading verses 11 through 14 this morning. May God bless our study of his word. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We see here in these passages of Scripture that even good friends get into a conflict with one another every once in a while, don't they? Even people who love each other are going to clash and come to disagreements. And that's basically what we see here in these verses in Galatians chapter 2. Peter and Paul were allies in spreading the gospel, and yet they clash in a dramatic and public way over a very important topic. One that's at the heart of the controversy that Paul has been clearing up for the Galatians throughout this book. There are parallel benefits that we're going to be receiving from studying the conflict recorded in this passage. First of all, by reading this and studying this together, we're going to see that the verses we just read and the story that it describes illustrates in a vivid way that adding law to the gospel creates division and undermines the primacy of Jesus in salvation. When we allow people to enforce any kind of addition to the grace of Jesus Christ, then we're undermining the glory that He should be receiving because He alone is the one who drags us out of our sinful state and redeems us into holiness. Secondly, this story serves as a historical example of how to contend with leadership failures in the body of Christ. We're going to see here that a man that we have come to respect and appreciate, Peter, he's not a perfect man. How do we deal with that? By watching how Paul deals with it, we gain insight into how that must be dealt with in the church today. So we, we learn here in verse 12 that there were some new guys in town, right? The scripture tells us that these men came from James. Now there are several Jameses in the New Testament. This is not James the disciple. This is James who is a half-brother of Jesus. James, the half-brother of Jesus, served in, in Jerusalem. Um, he was a man of great influence. And we can assume that these men who came into Antioch were of Jewish heritage, that they had strong feelings about the role that the law of Moses was supposed to play in the life of a believer. It would appear that at the time that this conflict occurs in Antioch. Now remember, as Paul's writing this in Galatians, this has already occurred before. This is an older story that he's bringing back up again as an illustration. At the time that this conflict occurs in Antioch, the matter of whether or not a non-Jewish convert needed to be circumcised and take on the burden of the whole law, that hadn't yet been fully and definitively settled in the church. There were still people going back and forth about it. 
That's another reason why I believe that Galatians was written earlier than some people say that it was. I think it was written before the Jerusalem Council that occurs in Acts chapter 15. In your notes on September 9th, I included a, a timeline of the Apostle Paul's early ministry that shows when key events took place. You might still have that in your Bible. The Jerusalem Council was going to happen after the letter of Galatians was written. I believe, in fact, that the letter of Galatians in some ways catalyzed that council to occur. It caused it to, to happen in some ways. The Jerusalem Council was a gathering of many strong believers, many elders who had been serving over congregations. They came together because there was this controversy brewing and they needed to agree. They needed to come to a sense of unity in doctrine. And in that council, they decided once and for all that Gentile believers did not have to adopt the law of Moses to be saved. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to strictly obey the Sabbath as the Jews did. They didn't have to adhere to the Jewish diet, etc. Okay? In a way, that council would eventually standardize the understanding of the gospel that Paul's working to convince the Galatian church about in this letter. Uh, by the way, if you're wondering why James would send these kind of people and confuse folks, we're not told here that James held the same view as these men that came from him. In fact, if you go and read about that council in Acts 15, James would later acknowledge that some men went out from him behaving badly. Perhaps a direct reference to those goons that came to Antioch that we read about here in Galatians chapter 2. Maybe they were the ones that came from Jerusalem and not authorized by James to do so, began to put pressure on this community in Antioch for those Gentile believers to take on the law of Moses. So as these men from Jerusalem began to observe the behavior of the church in Antioch, Cephas, the man who formerly extended the right hand of fellowship to the Gentile believers around him, went through a kind of behavioral regression. In the South, they call it backsliding. He became suddenly immature again. He began to act as he had probably acted well before Jesus ever invited him to leave his fishing boat and become a fisher of men. You see, before Christ came, before the radical deliverance of the gospel to us, Jews were very, very cautious about who they would sit down and eat a meal with. They were very cautious about their fellowship. To sit down and eat a meal with Gentiles who did not honor Yahweh and whose diet was drastically different than the foods that they were allowed to eat, that was considered scandalous to a Jew before Jesus. Remember the way that the Pharisees and the scribes reacted when they heard that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. And those weren't even Gentiles. That's because meals had such meaning and significance. When you sat down and broke bread with a man or woman, you were staking a claim with them. You were showing a commonality with them. So with these critical men watching his behavior, Peter withdrew. He separated himself from those who professed Christ, yet did not consider the restrictions of the Mosaic covenant as applicable to them. Now, we might ask ourselves for a moment, was this really that big of a deal? I mean, don't we all have the freedom to eat with who we want to eat with? Peter doesn't have to be best friends with every single believer in the church, right? To some, it might seem that the Apostle Paul's being overly critical and calling out Peter for a small, somewhat petty thing. But here's the problem, friends. If we believers do not love one another, 
we are revealing that we don't really understand the true gospel of God. Refusing to eat with these Gentile believers displayed an acute lack of love and acceptance on the part of Peter. How much care does God take to reveal to his elect how important it is that in God's church we are to love one another? He goes to great lengths to make that absolutely crystal for us. John 13, 34 through 35, these are the words of the Savior himself. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If, if, if you have love for one another. If we do not love one another, what are we jeopardizing? We are jeopardizing the way the world sees the church and the gospel from its outside perspective. If they peer into the, the walls of our church and they see us bickering with each other and hurting each other and failing to be there for one another in times of trial, if we're not praying for each other, if we're not standing up for each other, they're going to see a people divided. They're not going to see a people of love. They're not going to see a people of the gospel. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. I therefore... A prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, how? In love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, friends, we are to bear with one another in a specific way, in a loving way, in a patient way. And if we do not, then disunity will begin to sow itself among our fields. We are to love one another. It is a way of life, a manner that is worthy of the gospel by which we have been saved. Peter, or Paul's not saying there in Ephesians that if you're not loving one another, you're not earning your salvation well enough. He's saying live worthy of the transformation that's been put into you. And then in 1 John 4, 11 through 12, we read, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right? No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. So no one's ever seen the physical personage of God. It would destroy us if we saw God in, in, his, in, his, in His fullness. We can't handle it. But what the scripture is saying is that when God's love is on display in you, the image of God can be clear to the world. God's love can be reflected to those who are watching you live your life. How hollow does it ring if Peter were to, to, to declare, oh, oh, yes, yes, I love you, my gentle bro Gentile brothers. I, I love you. Oh, yes, I'm unified with you through Christ. But, you know, unfortunately, we just can't eat together. You know, it's... I know, it's, I know it's awkward, but we're the same. I mean, we're the same in faith, but I can't be seen hanging out with you, really, because, well, you don't follow the laws of, of Moses, right? So we're equal, but we're culturally very different. And because of that difference, I just can't have very much meaningful fellowship with you. See how hollow that sounds? No, brothers and sisters, that is not the way we are to live. We are not obeying the Lord's command to love one another, if we are looking down our noses at brothers and sisters in Christ and considering ourselves better than they, 
If we would divide the church into the holy and the unholy and pretend like there are certain classes or statuses or ethnicities that are better than another, we would be doing damage to the great loving image of the gospel that God has put into our hearts. This love that has been commanded of us is to be expressed love, not just felt love. I can't just say, oh, I love him in my heart and then do nothing about it. I am to live out love to my neighbor because that is what Christ did for me. He didn't sit up in heaven and say, oh, that's just too bad about those people down there in sin who will never know me. I love them, but yeah, I'm not going to go down there. No, he condescended and came into our creation so that he might intervene and do something for us because he loved us. He took action. In the wake of America's civil war, Slavery was abolished, praise the Lord, and black men and women were declared free. Unfortunately, it would take some time before the hearts of many white Americans would catch up with their politics. For years after that war was finished, huge portions of the South practiced what is called segregation. And if you've lived in California your whole life, you don't know what that tastes like. But going back to visit my family in, in Arkansas, my grandfather will tell me stories about real examples of segregation that he saw growing up and how there are still reverberations and echoes of that discrimination in the South. Black people were free, but they had to go to different schools. They were free, but they had to drink from different water fountains. They were free, but they had to ride on a different part of the bus. Those laws that described black people as separate but equal revealed that in their hearts, many of those white Americans were not yet ready to really love the citizens who didn't look just like them. This new habit of Peter's has the potential to sow that kind of division in his church. And Paul loves the church. He's not going to put up for that. Galatians 2.12 explains why Peter behaved that way. He behaved that way because he feared the members of the circumcision party. It was fear that drove this hypocrisy. See, the members of the circumcision party were, were not unlike the very teachers that Paul had been warning the Galatians about. These teachers who had gone along and saying that Paul's gospel is not the full gospel. You've got to have circumcision. You've got to have all the laws of Moses that you're obeying or else all that Jesus did on the cross doesn't count for you. Those individuals taught that Jesus was essential, but he wasn't exclusive. If you want to be saved, you've got to believe in him, but you also need to do more. That's just the first step. The circumcision party believed that once you gave your life to Jesus, you needed to submit to the complete law of Moses. And Peter was afraid that these men would think differently of him if they came into his town and saw him eating with those Gentiles. If they saw him partaking of some of those fruit or those foods, that God, through a vision in Acts chapter 10, had declared clean now. The Jewish believers were allowed to eat these things. They were allowed to partake of them because they were now holy before the Lord God. Friends, this is not the first time that Peter stumbled due to fear, is it? Fear had caused him to sink in the waters upon which Jesus had called him to walk. Remember, he took several steps out of the boat when he saw his Savior on the waters and he said, call to me. He called to Peter. Peter walked upon those waters until in a moment he looked and saw the waves beginning to move and he doubted. And his fear of, of being drowned in that storm caused him to call out. He began to sink and, and Jesus had to rescue him. 
Fear had caused Peter to initially react to Jesus' plan to offer up his life with rejection. Do you remember when Jesus said, the Son of Man must go forward and be crucified? And Peter said, may it never, never be so. And how did, how did Jesus respond to Peter? He said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter was afraid of losing his friend. He didn't see the bigger picture. Knowing that God is sovereign and in control did not give him the courage that it should have given him. And of course, fear of conviction caused Peter to deny that he knew Jesus three different times during the course of our Savior's crucifixion. So friends, do you think that fear is something that we as God's church need to be careful about? Do you think that fear is something we need to be aware of? Do you think we need to be ready to fight against our fears if they are not placed on the appropriate object? Peter knew the true gospel. He wasn't really deceived here about what was right and what was wrong. He was simply worried that men who thought differently about it than he did would think less of him if he ate with these Gentile friends. So he picked up his lunch tray and he moved to another table. As a leader, Peter's behavior did not affect only Peter, did it? Galatians 2.13 says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When other Jewish Christians in Antioch witnessed this unloving behavior in Peter, they began to think that that was the standard way that a Jewish Christian should behave. Peter was an apostle, so... I should probably do what Peter does. And they were swept up into this same divisive sin. Are you beginning to see why adding works to the gospel of salvation is so dangerous, friends? Paul didn't want the non-Jewish Christians excluded like this in the church. Paul didn't want some caste system to develop whereby the Gentile believers were considered less holy, like some sort of spiritual second class. He didn't want that. Paul didn't want the Gentile believers wondering if their faith was not enough since so many of their alleged brothers would not even stoop to eat a meal with them. The unity of the church is at stake in this critical moment. And something even more critical than that was at stake, my friends. To deny the fellowship to Gentile believers was to imply that faith alone would not lead to the kind of redemption that would purify a man from sin. It would imply that following the law, not faith in Jesus, but doing the things that Moses had written down, were actually the kind of obedience that would purify a person. To add works to the scheme of salvation is to rob Jesus of the exclusive glory that he deserves for saving us. If my salvation is synergistic, that means if it is Jesus' work on the cross plus my work of obedience that makes me a saved man, if I'm saved by the blood of God and also by my religious devotion, then to some degree, Jesus has to share the credit of my salvation with me. No, how, no matter how little I think my part is, I'm taking something from Jesus. His name is first on the marquee. Salvation, starring Jesus, but in little letters below, featuring Nick Neves. I'm taking a little bit of the credit and glory away from him. And then I can say, like the Pharisee was happy to say in Luke 18, 11, 
that I am glad, God, that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You remember that proud man who prayed in the temple, these things that were meant to exalt him before the Lord? Sure, I made my mistakes, but at least I was smart enough to see I needed Jesus and to choose him. I was a sinner before, but thanks to the cross and to my devotion to doing all the right things, God surely loves me now. This sinful heart of man that resides in us wants desperately to maintain something of the glory that we tried to steal from God when we rebelled against Him in the first place. Even when we can see the beauty and the truth of the gospel of grace, we often try to salvage at least a sliver of that inflated picture we used to have of ourselves when we were unregenerate and living apart from dependence on Jesus. Our hearts are such natural sin factories that man will even go to great lengths to hide our pride within our theologies so that we can believe that our high view of our own holiness is justifiable. That is exactly what the circumcision party was trying to do. They didn't want to let go of the fact that they could do nothing to save themselves. They had for so many years proven themselves with their deeds in their own mind. That now that Jesus came and offered them grace, they didn't know how to let it go. They couldn't just let Jesus be Jesus and save them. They had to, in their minds, think that at least some little part of it was theirs. Peter's unloving behavior was the product of fear. Fear that is manufactured by the root of this work salvation, which demands that a man be good enough to be loved by God. Friends, no man is good enough to be loved by God. Every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has earned the wage of sin, which is death and eternal separation. How are we, as rebels to the cross, supposed to work our way back to Him? It's not in us unless Christ puts it in us. In verse 14, Paul declares, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. This week as I prepared, I just meditated on that verse over and over again. I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Because Peter's behavior gave the wrong impression about such an important truth, he had taken action. Paul had to confront Peter. He had to do something about this because Peter's steps were moving away from the truth and he had to direct his friend back to the truth. Neighbors, when we see a Christian friend stumbling in sin, for many, the thought of confronting that brother or sister in Christ can be terrifying. It can be so nerve-wracking to think about making that call and saying, can we get together and talk? I just just have some things I want to... I want to get off my heart. I want, to, I want to see how you're doing. It is so much easier for us to just stay in our lane and let our brother or sister make their own decision, whether good or bad. But that's not what Paul does for Peter here. It is necessary for good friends to look after each other's hearts 
And that means that we, when we see a brother or sister whose steps are not in step with the gospel, who is walking in a way that doesn't glorify the Lord and makes other people question what the gospel is really all about, we must step in and do something about that. Passive ignorance only sickens the body of Christ. It only weakens and undermines our testimony when we sit back and just hope it will all get better one day and do nothing about it. Hebrews 12 Verses 5 through 6 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We can look at Peter and criticize his life and say, Man, this guy was afraid a lot, right? Look at all the times he stumbled. But I also look at Peter and say, Thank the Lord that every time he was admonished, he received it gracefully. I have so much to learn from Peter because he doesn't stand proudly and say, you're wrong. He doesn't fight back against Paul and say, who do you think you're talking to? I walked with Jesus for three years. What kind of gospel did you get? He humbly received this correction. Notice how Paul confronts Peter. He does it in a specific way. He does it to his face. Gossip is no loving confrontation, friend. When we go around and talk about other people's business without going to them and addressing them face to face, we are just adding harm to another person's sin. We are in need of correction ourselves. That is not how correction works, friends. We do not go and say, did you hear what I did? Did you see what happened on Saturday? I can't believe how that person handled that situation. That is not how we confront, and that is not how Paul confronted Peter. He confronted him to his face because proper confrontation needs to be done in love and respect, one-on-one. Nothing is resolved by indirect criticism. If you want your roses to grow, don't go water the petunias. Don't go put the water on the tulips and the daisies. You go water the roses. That's how your roses are going to grow. Face-to-face confrontation gives the person a chance to explain themselves or to repent of their action. When you're face-to-face with them, they can interact with what you have to say. Sometimes our confrontation may be from a misunderstanding. There might not even be sin there. But if you don't go face-to-face with that person and tell them directly, how can they explain what they did or how we saw it the wrong way? If you don't feel confident enough to bring up your claims to the person, then maybe you need more information before you're sure that they need to be corrected. Maybe you need to sit and wait a little while and watch to see if this is really a sin pattern or just a misunderstanding on your part. So Paul confronted Peter face to face. But Paul also confronted Peter before them all. This, by the way, is not the standard protocol that Jesus taught us to practice correction. In Matthew 18, we learn that correction is supposed to begin face-to-face, but it's also supposed to begin privately between two individuals. You want to respect that person, and you don't need to air their laundry in front of everyone, especially if it turns out there's a misunderstanding or that person has already seen their sin and repented and corrected it. And so initially, usually, our confrontations need to start in a face-to-face conversation. But this is a little bit different, isn't it? Paul is speaking of a special circumstance here. In First uh, Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, you might remember this from our series on the elders, Paul is speaking of elders and he says, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all 
so that the rest may stand in fear. Now notice within that scripture, leave that up on the screen for a second. It says those who persist in sin. So this doesn't preclude the idea that a man can go to an elder privately and try to settle something if he sees one account or one problem. But if that elder continues to do the same thing over and over again, if there's a pattern that others are observing, then we owe it to the body of Christ to bring that leader's sin before the public in the hope that the admonition would undo some of the wrong example that leader had given to those following him. That's one of the weighty responsibilities that God calls us to as elders. It is not easy to be a teacher. And when you say yes to that calling, you're saying yes to the possibility that if you dwell in sin for a time, your sin may be brought before the congregation because you're a teacher and an influencer. The uh, food pantry recently has been blessed with a lot of extra food. I mean, we've gotten uh, a new contract with Costco and with Food Source over in, uh, in Pittsburgh. And so we're getting an abundance of, of food. And sometimes we'll get flats and flats and flats of berries, blueberries, strawberries, raspberries. And the reason we're getting them for free is because they're a little bit past when you should be keeping them on your shelves. They're not bad necessarily, but some of those berries are going to have some fuzzy stuff growing in them. Now, if you work with a food pantry, you know what I'm talking about. You can't just give fuzzy stuff to people, right? And if you just have a little bit of fuzzy stuff in your strawberries, and you just say, oh, that'll be fine. You put it there, and you leave, and you come back on Saturday. Guess what you're going to have on Saturday? A lot of fuzzy stuff and probably some liquid strawberries, right? Because it spreads. It multiplies. That sin needs to be cut out because it has an influence on other people. Just like the mold that influences other fruits. You've got to get it out of there or else it's going to defile. And so when a leader falls into sin, you've got to do the hard work of confronting that sin. And if it's a persistent sin, then you need to bring it before the congregation and show them this sin so that those who learned wrongly by watching the example of that elder gone astray can be corrected and can get their steps back in sync with the true gospel. Friends, Paul did not want to do this. Peter is a legitimate friend of Paul. He didn't admonish Peter out of jealousy or out of rivalry. He admonished him out of love, love for Peter and love for God's church. Not just love, though. You see, Paul was acting on fear as well. Not the kind Peter had. Peter was afraid of the opinions of man. But Paul had a reverent and right fear of God. Paul understood the weight of his calling and was very aware of the fact that the integrity of the gospel message was in danger here. Paul feared that the gospel would be corrupted. His responsibility to the God who he feared was motivation enough for Paul to do what was difficult, to do what was scary, to confront a brother and to do it even in front of everyone. So Paul presents a logical argument here, a testimony to Peter's behavior in the verse. <clears throat> Galatians 2.14 But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, Peter had been 
a good example of the true gospel. Though it was difficult for him to step out of his religious practices, growing up a Jew, he had always observed the dietary laws. He had always kept the Sabbath perfectly. He had always offered sacrifices. Though that was ingrained in him, in Acts chapter 10, when the Lord gave him a vision and said, all these foods are clean, eat. At first he resisted, but then he realized, if this is of God, I must obey. And Peter did. He began to observe those, those meals, and, and he, didn't, he didn't abstain from pork anymore. He, he, didn't, he didn't caution himself about who he was eating with so much anymore. He, he did what God had called him to do. God had released him from the law. But not only him, all who trust in the name of Jesus. The verses that we're studying today show us that leaders are not perfect, don't they? Peter was drawn off his true mission by the influence of others. When Peter gave place to that sin, Barnabas was drawn off of the true gospel by Peter. A man does not need to be perfect to serve in ministry, but an imperfect minister must be ready to repent of any sin he stumbles in. Had Peter stopped believing the gospel? Absolutely not. But his actions made it appear as though he had bought into this false doctrine of faith plus works. Christian, are there any ways that your actions right now in your life are undermining your beliefs? If I could give you a list of ten people in your life that are secretly watching you right now, and are examining the way you live to see if it matches what you say you believe as a Christian, would you be happy with what showed up on the list? We have to realize that the things that we do illustrate the things that we believe. How do you post on your social media pages? Is there a godly testimony within the things that you say and the pictures that you show? The manner that you conduct yourself in your place of work, does it reflect the heart of someone whose life is in the hands of Jesus Christ? Or does it show something different? The language that you use when you're not around other believers, the words that you put to use, are they holy words? Are they pure words? Are they words that direct people back to Christ? How about the way that you love your fellow believers in the church? I want that to really settle into our hearts today as we get ready to conclude this message. How do you treat your brothers and sisters in this room? Now, there are probably people that you don't know, and it's hard when you have a big congregation, but are there people that you avoid because of their culture, because of their tendencies, because of their personalities? Are there people that you are not breaking bread with right now? Without actually saying it out loud, but you're making the decision not to do that because of the trouble it causes? Friends, if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, our unity must display the kind of love that Christ has displayed to us. If we behave like the world and profess Christ, the testimony that we display to lost people is going to teach them a false picture of Jesus. And if by the grace of God they're saved despite of that, all of that false learning is going to have to be unlearned through discipleship. By the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, friends, let us determine to examine our hearts 
and to seek to live out a faith that matches in word and in deed. There's one last thing that this uh, schism between Peter and Paul accomplished. If the Galatians, and remember, we're in a Galatians letter here. We've, we've been talking about the story that happened before the letter of Galatians is written. But getting back to the letter of Galatians here. If the Galatians had any doubt left where Paul got his gospel from, then this conflict with Peter proved that Paul did not receive his gospel from men, right? He received it from Jesus, not from any other source. Paul was not subordinate to Peter. He was not Peter's apprentice. He didn't feel hesitation to go to Peter and to call him out if it needed to be so because the gospel he had was not the gospel that Peter put into his hands. It was the gospel that Jesus had given to him in his heart. They were under the same gospel, the same Savior, the one cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And so he boldly called Peter to task and his willingness to do so was not from any dislike of Peter but was rather because of his intense loyalty to this gospel that he received directly from the Lord. That loyalty will continue to be on display as Paul further clarifies the power of the one true gospel in the verses that we will study next week. Would you bow your heads together as we pray, friends?